When it comes to sports, you get a lot of passionate fans, right? What is fans short for? Fanatic. Fanatic. Yeah. No wonder they shorten it, right? We don't want to, we don't want to be known as fanatics. But what do, what do fans do? They, they follow their team uh, the, or their, their favorite athlete. There's uh, discussions. That's a kind way to say it. Arguments, Twitter wars. Uh, people just bashing one another about their teams and how lame they are, how great they are, whatever. Uh, but it's a lot of heat is generated about the strengths and the weaknesses of a team or, a, or an individual athlete. And, and one of the things that you hear sometimes that people will argue or discuss is, is about offense versus defense. Uh, what, what is better should you, should you try to have a better offense or a better defense? You know, of course you'd like to have both, but that doesn't happen very often. So people, you know, they say things like, well, it's defense wins championships or a good pitcher will beat a good hitter or, you know, a good offense is a good defense because you're keeping the other team off the field or whatever. And um, so as, as people who follow Jesus, we, we also have to think about this. We should, we should focus on, on both of these things, offense and defense. So let me explain, because when it comes to, to thinking offensively as Christians, this does not mean that we should be offensive, okay? There's a little bit of English. We're, we're dealing with the difficulties of the English language here, right? Um, we, we don't want to be offensive in the name of Jesus or on his behalf, but it means that we do things uh, actively or we are in motion so we do things like we pray that is an offensive uh, action or we initiate conversations with people or we sing right that's an active thing that we do we we serve we listen to the concerns of our community that's a that's an active thing that we can do so so we go on the offense for Jesus through action and through motion. But on the other hand, sometimes we must be on the defense. And, and again, this is critical to, to understand. This doesn't mean we should be defensive, that we should have a posture toward people where we overreact or we're always trying to make excuses or we're trying to blame, right? We don't want to be that kind of defensive, but it means that we become reactive, we respond to other people's offensive uh, movements, right? So we're responding to questions that people have. We're responding to objections or criticisms or skepticism when our life of following Jesus comes into conflict with the culture around us. So we are both offensive and defensive as we follow Jesus. And as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, we have seen the church do both of these things or act in these ways. We've seen the church on offense, right? Beginning in, at, the, at the start of Acts, they're in Jerusalem, this small group of followers uh, who are disciples of Jesus, and ever since then, they've been an incredible church of motion and action, prayer, really vibrant, strong community, uh, miracles. They're sending people out further and further into the Roman Empire on Jesus' mission. They're planting churches. They are baptizing people. They're equipping and sending new leaders out into new places. I mean, 
this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, right? So it's, it's telling us this is about the motion and the movement and the action of the early church. And so over the, the past several weeks, months, we've seen primarily this happening through the ministry of this man called Paul, that God had set him apart to be a man of action, of going to new places. And, and this happened right at the beginning of Paul's calling into ministry. In Acts chapter 9, we saw that Paul is a, God says, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And we've seen Paul fulfilling this calling. He has carried the name of Jesus to many different places on many different journeys all over the Roman Empire. And beginning today, and, and for really the rest of what we'll see in the book of Acts, we see Paul taking more of a defensive posture. His life becomes more one of defense. In, in the passage we're looking at today, he is arrested and he will be in custody in some way for the rest of the book of Acts. He will no longer be free to go where he wants to go. He won't be sent out by any more churches into new cities to preach the gospel in those places. And does that mean now that his ministry is over, that his calling is now finished because, because he's on the defense? Does that mean that God won't be able to use him anymore? And what we see through the rest of the book of Acts is that's not true. He's hardly finished with his, his ministry because as we'll see, uh, Paul's defense of the Christian faith will take him all the way to the heart of the Roman Empire and actually will be the fulfillment of the calling that Jesus gave to him back in Acts chapter 9. And so for us, we can ask, what does following Jesus look like when we are on the defensive, when we don't get to pick and to choose what our mission and our ministry will look like. So in the passage we're reading today, we will see that we must defend our faith against disunity, against lies, and against fear. So we're going to read Acts beginning in chapter 21. We're going to be verse 17 all the way through Verse 21 of chapter 22. So it's a, it's a long chunk. It's all going to be up on the screen. If you're using one of the Bibles from the table back there, it begins on page 930, goes all the way to 932. So let's read this passage together. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know 
that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when, there was, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but, being, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, 
came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed me. And he said to me, Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask that you would bless the hearing and the reading and the preaching of your word. That it would pierce us to the deepest places. That you would show us how we can follow you faithfully. How we can defend the faith. Not our faith, but the faith that you have given to us. And, and that you would show us ways that we uh, can, can speak and live in truth and humility and hope. Would you help us now? Show us the way to follow you, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, we begin by seeing in this passage that we, we must first defend the Christian faith against disunity. So we see Paul, he's returning to the city of Jerusalem, and he's gladly welcomed and accepted by the Christian community there. So, so Luke, who's the author of this, of this book, uh, there's a bunch of leaders from different Gentile churches. They come together with Paul. They go to see the leaders of the church, the elders of the church in Jerusalem, to give a report, right? Much like we just watched a video about Grace Bible Church. We heard a report of what's going on in that church. Paul is giving a report of, here's what happened on my journey. Here's the churches that I was with. Here's the people that are following Jesus now. Here's the people that are being baptized. Uh, and, and Luke doesn't mention it specifically, but it's also likely that, that this is the time when Paul and these other leaders deliver this financial gift that they've been collecting from all the churches along their journey uh, to, to bless the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was under great persecution. They were experiencing a lot of poverty because they were, they were suffering financially because of uh, being ostracized because of their Christian faith. And so the Gentile churches collected money at great cost to themselves to bless the church in Jerusalem. And it's likely that this is the time when, when they deliver this gift to the church in Jerusalem. And the response that they get from their report and from their offering is, is great. There's this praise and worship of God. Look what God has done. Look what he's done through you, Paul, through, in the lives of these other leaders, in these other churches. What an amazing testimony of God's grace at work. The mission that Jesus gave us is being fulfilled and it's continuing to be fulfilled. So there's joy there's gratitude, there's this general sense of we are part, we're doing what Jesus has called us to do. It's wonderful. 
And the church in Jerusalem, they have their own good news to share with, with Paul and these other leaders who've come from the Gentile churches. They say, well, you were out on God's mission in those places. Something has been happening here in, these, uh, in, in Jerusalem and in Israel. Many thousands of, of Jewish people have put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the righteous one. So to sum it all up, God is saving people, Jews, he's saving Gentiles, he's bringing them all together in the unity of salvation in Jesus. Awesome, so good, such a wonderful thing. But there's danger that's lurking here in the midst of the success that God has given to his church. In the second half of verse 20, we read that these people who have put their faith in Jesus These Jewish people, they're zealous or they're passionate for for the law that God has given them, and they have been told about you that you, Paul, that you teach the Jews in these other cities, these other places, to forsake Moses, to forsake the law, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So, So they're saying to Paul, we are excited that you're here, and we celebrate and support what you're doing but a lot of the other Christians, these new believers here in Jerusalem, they have questions. They're not real big fans of your methods uh, because there's these rumors floating around and many of them believe that the way that you are telling people about Jesus is causing Jewish people to forsake the customs, things like circumcision and following the covenant of the Old Testament. So you're diminishing their Jewishness is, is a way we could say it. So this isn't so much a theological question is it, as it is a cultural and a political question. During this time in, uh, in Jerusalem, it's just prior to uh, the Roman Empire destroying Jerusalem, basically, and there's a lot of nationalism. There's a, there's a hyper sense of um, Israel's identity and fearing that it was going to be eliminated. And we see that reflected here in, in their concerns that they have. And, and, and even though it's not necessarily a theological question, we're not talking about how are we saved, but, but it's a big enough question to threaten the unity of the church at this time. So the leaders of the, of the church in Jerusalem, they say we've, we recognize it, we see this as a problem, and we have an idea. They tell Paul, why don't you sponsor these four men who are about to dedicate themselves to this this Jewish vow? And so it's a a political move. It will show the people that these rumors, they're not true. That It'll, it'll, it'll show as you sponsor them, as you pay for their, their vow that they're going to take, and as you yourself are being purified ritually in the temple, that you are obeying the law, that you're following the law, observing the law, and that will put to rest all these rumors that are going around. And it, it's a plan. It doesn't require Paul to, to compromise his conviction or anyone to compromise their conviction that Salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone, not through obedience to the law. But it does require something of Paul. It requires humility on his part. It would have been very easy for Paul to say, you know, why do I have to prove anything to anyone? 
I mean, I just told you about what God is doing through me, right? Look at these people that we brought here. We brought you money. This is proof that God is blessing the work that we're doing. And all this stuff, it it can't be true. You know that it's not true. I came back to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the Jewish feasts. Why would I be here if I didn't care about the law? These rumors are ridiculous. And that's all true. Paul had, he's not done what he's been accused of. He could just reject these suggestions by the leadership in Jerusalem and say, I don't need to do that. I don't have to do that. That's ridiculous. But instead, he chooses humility. He chooses love. He chooses to serve his Jewish brothers and sisters by accommodating their cultural practices and by taking this step toward them. And that's what humility does is it takes steps toward people rather than, than planting your foot down and saying, I'm not going to move. I don't need to prove anything to anyone. And I think what we're seeing here is Paul is modeling something that he's written in a letter to one of the churches that he planted in the city of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, the first letter that he wrote to this church, in chapter 9, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. There will always be threats against the unity of Jesus' church. And our best defense against this this threat, against disunity, is humility. When we follow Jesus, when we make him the, the highlight, when we make him the main goal, when, when the gospel becomes what we do, everything, when that's our motivation, when we're not looking for credit for ourselves, when we're not defending our own honor, our own you know, accomplishments, something we can stand on or fighting for our rights, but instead we say, so that Jesus is lifted up, I will serve, I will love, I will humble myself for the sake of others so that they might see him instead of looking at me, all for the sake of the gospel. So as followers of Jesus, we must defend our faith against disunity. Next, we must defend our faith against lies. The goal for the plan that the leadership has in Jerusalem is to prove these rumors are not true and everything seems to be going well according to the plan until the final day of Paul's ritual cleansing when he has to go back to the temple and to to give an offering. And so some Jewish people who've come all the way from the city of Ephesus where Paul had spent a lot of his time in ministry They've come all the way to Jerusalem to cause trouble. They're probably the ones who are spreading these rumors, and they see Paul in 
the temple. And if Paul thought he had trouble before, if the church in Jerusalem thought there was danger, it just gets so much worse. These, these Jewish people, they, they essentially start a riot saying, no, no, the rumors are true. Everywhere Paul goes, he teaches against the Jewish people, against the Jewish law, against the temple itself. And even worse, he has brought a Gentile into the temple itself and defiled it. Now, to us, this sounds petty, right? This sounds, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a tolerant society and that these kinds of ethnic and religious conflicts are just really not something that we would engage in. Uh, but, but I think we need to ask ourselves, is that really the case? Um, just this week, a flyer was posted a mile away from here on a billboard in Henderson Center that stated... White youth, this entire system hates you and wants to see our race dead. Organize with us and bring an end to it. And included a picture of an assault rifle. And the website for the group on the flyer stated that the U.S. is being infested by minorities and was never meant to be a melting pot, but instead a shining beacon of true Aryan spirit. Now, I'm sure it would offend a white supremacist to be compared with Jewish people, but the same law, the same, excuse me, the same lie that is at the root of white supremacy is at the root of what these men are saying about Paul. Uh, these, these Jewish men who've come from Ephesus, they were not fellow believers in Jesus, and they saw the message that Paul was preaching as a threat to their place as God's chosen people alone and that no one else, no other ethnicity could share in that. Now, why would they see the gospel as a threat? Why would they see the message that Paul is preaching as a threat to their distinction in ethnicity? Because the gospel of Jesus tells us that whether we are Jew or Gentile, whatever ethnicity we are, we are all one in Jesus. We are all one in Christ. And the wall that has divided us has been torn down. It's been destroyed. And so to them, Paul is a traitor to his own people. And so they believe with conviction that they're telling the truth when they say Paul is speaking against his own people, against his own culture, against their holy place of worship. But they, they take it one step further and they say, Paul has brought uh, one of these Gentiles that has traveled with him into the temple itself. And to bring a Gentile into the temple, past the dividing wall, they had these markers that were set up all around that said, if you come past this point and you're a Gentile, you will be put to death. And the Romans allowed the Jews to carry this sentence out without, without oversight. They just said, yeah, if there's a Gentile in there, you guys can do your thing. We'll, we'll give you that. And they say, Paul has done this. He has broken this, this law that God gave to us that they can't come in. Now, now for this 
for this accusation, it just becomes too much. This crowd that has gathered around in the temple, uh, it, Paul just gets caught up in this chaos uh, of, of hatred and nationalism that has just been tightening its noose around Israel and around Jerusalem. And so they take Paul out of the temple, out of the holy place. They don't want to defile it, and, and they are going to put him to death. That's their that's their goal. And along the way, they are brutally beating him. And, and there's a Roman garrison that's close by, and they see what's happening, and they say, no, we can't, we can't allow this. We have to have order here. And the, the tribune, tribune, he, he stops the beating. He says, we got to restore order here. He saves Paul's life, and, and he's trying to find out what is happening, because you know, this is just, this is, this should not be. His job is to keep order in the city. And so he can't even find out what's happening because everyone is talking, everyone is yelling. This is just not a safe place. Uh, and, and so he says, let's, let's get this guy out of here. They remove him uh, to the barracks to so just talk to him alone, try to figure out what's happening. But there's another problem because this Roman official he believes that Paul is an Egyptian terrorist who has been uh, causing all kinds of destabilization within the city, trying to uh, kind of do some guerrilla warfare. And, and it's, you know, in the historical records, it's anywhere from four to 30,000 people uh, have been involved in this rebellion. So it's a significant thing. And, and the Roman official thinks Paul is that guy. He's the one we've been looking for. No one else would cause such a big problem in the city. So, so the Jews, many of them are believing and telling lies about Paul. The Romans don't know who he is, but they think the worst. If we skip forward in the history of the church, the early Christians, they were accused of all kinds of things like incest and cannibalism and atheism because they greeted one another with a holy kiss and because they took the Lord's Supper to remember the body and the blood of Jesus and because they didn't worship the emperor, and so they were accused of these awful things. Today, the church in the world is accused of all kinds of things as well, that we are bigots, that we are immoral, that we are hypocrites, that we are dangerous to a pluralistic society because of our conviction that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, how does Paul defend himself? How, how do we defend ourselves and the Christian faith against lies? And I believe that, uh, that what we see in this passage is that our best defense against lies is a truthful life, a truthful life. Paul had not taken a Gentile into the temple, even though I, I would guess that he probably wanted to do that. Uh, he was not a terrorist. He never stirred up a human rebellion against the Roman Empire. His life, uh, in many ways, was a blameless life. We saw that earlier in chapter 20. Um, many things he did were, were definitely misunderstood, uh, his methods that he had. And, and we could say the same is true for us today. So we can't just hope that if we just clear things up, if we just explain what we're trying to do, that it will remove the lies that have been spoken about us. But, but if we have not lived a truthful, faithful life for Jesus, if we have been hypocritical, if we are not obeying Jesus 
faithfully, it will be difficult to defend our faith. Our life itself, not just the words we speak, is a testimony. It is difficult enough to defend our faith against lies and against mischaracterizations and misunderstandings and hostility. And so let's not add to that burden, to that difficulty by confirming the things that people would say against us. The Apostle Peter, he uh, speaks to the early church about this in 1 Peter 3. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Look at what he says here. Having a good conscience, living a truthful life, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. Their lie will be exposed. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As followers of Jesus, we defend the faith against disunity through humility. Through humility. We defend the faith against lies by living truthful lives. And finally, we must defend our faith against fear. After Paul clears up this whole I'm not a terrorist issue that's been going on uh, with the Roman leader, he's given permission by the Roman official to speak to this mob of angry people. And remember, they had just been trying to kill him. They were beating on him savagely. They, uh, you know, what do you say to people who who are just waiting for the go-ahead to finish what they started to kill you? Uh, what, what kind of defense do you make? Like, this is a tight spot, and Paul's been in a lot of tight spots before, but, but I think this might have been the scariest one for him yet. And, and he begins by motioning to the crowd. He signals to them, I want to speak to you. I want to communicate to you. He doesn't, and Paul doesn't have to do this. He's not, he's not bound to do this. But he says, I want to take a step toward them. Again, showing humility. I want to communicate with with my Jewish brothers in their own language. He speaks to them in the Hebrew language respectfully, brothers and fathers with, with honor. And he begins to tell his own story. Like you, I'm a Jew. I've been just as zealous as you to keep the law of God. And if you know Paul's life, he was even more so, uh, more zealous. And he says, I hated these Christians. I hated this way that they were teaching and preaching and displaying in the city of Jerusalem. I persecuted them to the death. I hunted them down in the surrounding cities. He says, I can identify with you. I know the struggle that you're having and the fear that you have that you're going to be eliminated and wiped out by this new way. But then Paul says, something happened. Something changed for me. I met Jesus. He came to me. And Paul gives his own account of what Luke told us about in Acts 9. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And to this great crowd of angry men, this former angry man says, this is what happened 
when I met Jesus. He changed my life. He gave me new sight. He transformed me. He gave me a new heart and a new mission. He says this this Jewish brother, Ananias, who had begun to follow Jesus, God sent him to me and said, you will be a witness for Jesus to everyone of what you have seen and what you have heard. And here Paul begins to give an invitation to his Jewish brothers. In spite of his strict observance and his zeal for the law, he says, this is what happened when I met Jesus and when my life changed. Through Ananias, the Lord said to Paul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And as Paul is telling his own story and sharing this transformation, this encounter that he had with Jesus, he is calling these men, these men who want him dead, he's saying, you also need to repent. You also need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. You also need to put your faith in him. Because none of the things that I had done before made me right with God. It was only when I came to Jesus that I found salvation. It was only when I came to Jesus that I was changed. And finally, he comes back to Jerusalem. He says, I came back here because my heart was for you. My heart was to tell you what happened. But God says, I have something else for you to do. Your mission is to go take the message of God's fulfillment of his promise, of the Messiah. I want you to take that message, that good news, out to the world, out to those who are outside of this Jewish family. And in verse 21, he finishes his speech, his defense, by saying, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And as we'll see next week, Paul's message did not have the effect that he was hoping for. Um, He probably knew there was a slim chance that he was getting out of here. But but it it does not go well. So we'll see that next week. But but I I just want to finish by asking, how could Paul make such a defense of his faith in Jesus in the face of such fear? The fear of the Jews who are who have become a mob, and the fear in his own heart, his own life. And, and he knows that, you know, whatever, when he's talking about calling on the name of Jesus, when he's talking about repenting, and when he's talking about his call to the Gentiles, he knows that that's not going to be well received. And he doesn't try and soften that. He doesn't try to, to file down the hard edges of that. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to follow Jesus He's calling them to see it was the God of Israel who sent me to the Gentiles on this mission. How could he be so bold in his defense? How, you know, he's got a death sentence hanging over his head. And he doesn't waver. He doesn't shy away. How, How does he do this? I think it's tempting for us to believe that Paul had a special kind of boldness 
that he was a very courageous man and he, he liked conflict, that he, he kind of sought it out because he gets in so much trouble. I mean, this guy just might, he just must like to, to pick fights with people. And, and I think if, if we say that, well, Paul was just, he had a, an abrasive personality and he liked to get in arguments. I think that if we, if we go that way, if we interpret it that way, we would say that the best defense against fear is courage or boldness. And, and that's what I originally thought as I was preparing for, for today. But, but I think if we go that way, we actually miss the point of what Paul is doing here in his testimony what kind of defense does Paul make? I don't think it's one of boldness. I think it's a message of hope. He doesn't trust in himself, in his own courage, his own boldness. Uh, in fact, he tells us the opposite. He says, what happened when I met Jesus? He didn't make me more bold. He didn't tell me that I was doing a good job. He brought me to the end of myself. He blinded me. He showed me that everything I had been doing was wrong. He brought me to the end of myself. And I had to turn away from a life of self-sufficiency. I had to turn away from a life of strength to one of weakness, to one of submission. But what does Paul have now? that he did not have before. He has hope in Jesus. He has hope in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on his behalf. And so I think Paul shows us that our best defense against fear is hope in Jesus. When you are afraid, when your faith is under fire internally or externally, when you are being accused, when you are feeling the pressure, look to Jesus. So we can encourage each other to be brave, be courageous, but be brave by looking to the bold one, by looking to the one who went to the cross for you. Be bold by looking to the one who washed all your sin away. Be bold by looking to the one who conquered death so that you could have life. Be bold by looking to the one who has changed you and transformed you. Be bold by looking to the one who will come again and set all things right and who knows the truth about you. In the, in the final part of The Lord of the Rings, in the book, not the movie, uh, author J.R. Tolkien, he tells us of a hobbit named Samwise Gamgee, and he found himself in a dark place, a place of feeling overwhelmed by evil, doubting that good could ever win. He says there peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains sam saw a white star twinkle for a while the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him for like a shaft clear and cold the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing there was light 
and high beauty forever beyond its reach. We fight against disunity with humility and self-sacrificing love. We fight against lies by living out the truth of the gospel. And we fight against fear by putting our hope in Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us because ultimately he is our defender. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be reminded that our ultimate, our ultimate defense is not in the words that we speak or even the lives that we live. Our ultimate defense rests in who your son Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so at the end of the day, even when we ourselves have failed, Jesus, you stand as our defender, our righteousness, our hope. Would you help us to believe? And would you help us to live out of this conviction, out of this faith, out of this belief? And help us to be a display of Jesus through the words that we speak and the lives that we live. Would we be faithful? Would we be a a living testimony of your transforming, saving power, Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you strengthen us? Would you send us to do your work in the world today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.